Now that was a blast from the past right here on Radio 3. It's nearly time for the big day. Forget about Christmas. We've got Marshy's Top 10. Join us on Facebook Live, if you possibly can, the Brewers app page. And that is where he is waiting in the most horrible sweater you have ever seen, which is probably a freebie from a Japanese movie company. How's it going? Very well. I actually paid good money for this. You were ripped off. I know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. What, what are we doing? Yeah, no, it's my, it's my Godzilla Christmas sweater. Yeah, join us on Facebook Live just for this. It mm. is quite... A- Quite a piece of work, actually. Yeah, so today, it's the one you've been waiting for. It's the, come on, hit us, what are we doing? Yes, okay, so after the news, I will unveil my top ten of 2023. Oh, which right, is sure to wait. Oh, I can't take Oh, yes. Oh, my oh, yes, because ahead of that, we have a couple of new releases, which we do need to talk about. Aquaman, Aquaman and Aquaman. the Lost Kingdom. Aquaman and the Lost <laughs> Kingdom, as well as Wish, which are the two sort of holiday movies that are out. Before that, I want to talk a little bit of news because the uh, long list for the International Feature Film Academy Award has been unveiled. Oh, yeah. Um, you may remember earlier, sort of last week, there was a bit, yeah. of a, 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 a bit of a kerfuffle in Hong Kong when Hong Kong's entry got disqualified. Uh, for breach, breach of the the rules, breach of uh, sort of a uh, submission rules. Whereas it turned it turned out that um, the the film that was submitted, uh, somebody on the voting committee uh, was um, was involved in the film, was a star and a producer of the film. My goodness! And so, yeah, I say, uh, which <laughs> which yeah, is yeah, a bit yeah, yeah. kind of. It's it's a bit kind of like uh, silly, really. Um, so um, what happened is that the film was uh, disqualified because they were like, you can't vote for your own movie. And um, <laughs> the movie the... swiftly on. <laughs> exactly. And they decided uh, rather than to submit like whatever was in second place on the list uh, to not submit anything at all. And I thought that was a very, very silly decision, quite frankly. Was that it's, a Teddy uh, yeah, out of not... pram moment, really? Or, or is it that well, they, they, that's they, all they had, I suppose? I don't know. The argument was that the film that was submitted had such a huge percentage of the votes that anything else uh, would have, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have rightly represented uh, the views of the, of the submission board or whatever. It is like, fair enough, but you messed up. You know, that, you got that film disqualified, so retake the vote. Yeah. You know, or or just go with the second place movie. Uh, they did neither, so they instead they chose to sit on their hands and do nothing, and so Hong Kong didn't get a look in. And um, so there is no Hong Kong movie uh, submitted this year, and there is no, obviously, Hong Kong movie on the long list. Okay. Uh, actually, actually, now we have the long list of about 15 uh, films and very poor turnout for Asian films. Uh, really, Japan, uh, Perfect Days is uh, one, pretty much the only one apart from Bhutan, and Armenia are the only other uh, Asian countries on there. Um, this Japanese film, Perfect Days, obviously it also has a sort of asterisk beside it because it's directed by German filmmaker Wim Wenders. Um, yeah. So one can argue that... We need some opinions from our panel of experts, don't we, on this one? Join us on Facebook Live, the Brewers app page. Yeah, where do you stand on all of this? Uh, where are what you? What is going... Exactly. Where are you? You're probably last minute Christmas shopping. The one thing that is of potential interest 
is that the UK submitted a film in best foreign language film, film category, uh, The Zone of Interest, directed by Jonathan Glazier, um, which is, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but by all accounts is in German and is a hot, hot, hot favourite. It is appearing on a number of best of lists all around the world. Spoilers, it won't be on mine because, as I just said, I haven't seen it yet. Um, but that could be, uh, that is quite possibly the front runner as it stands. And that would be quite interesting to see the UK actually winning best foreign language film. The last time I remember the UK even sort of submitting a film or, or a film that had a look in was about sort of 20 odd years ago when they submitted a Welsh language movie. I mean, good uh, luck with that. <laughs> yeah, it didn't really make any waves. Uh, but Zone of Interest is, is right in the, is very much in the running. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if it's able to go all of the way, all the way because to see a UK film all right. win in that category will yeah. be a rare treat, I think. Yeah. Anyway, um, moving on from that, there are a couple of movies out this week that we do need to talk about. Can, you, can I just remind you, because my, my rapier memory tells me that you did promise to watch the rest of The Crown. I don't know if you have, probably not. Yeah, I watched it like immediately after the show last oh. week, so I have seen all of The Crown. Yeah, I pre Honestly, I thought you'd have probably forgotten. Uh, How could I? But um, I I thought it was an incredibly strong ending. Actually, I, I, did I really... you like the dream scene when she finally encounters Tony Blair? That was scary. It was. Um, I liked. I liked how they brought in uh, the other three actresses who had portrayed her at different stages of her life. Indeed. I thought that was. Um, I thought that was really well handled. I thought it was very clever how essentially they were able to address her death and her funeral and all the rest of it without without getting there in the chronology. Did you, did you catch the... Well, look, let's not go too far on this because I'm sure not all, of, not all of our three listeners have seen it, but did you get the hark back when Tony Blair basically starts telling her what she should be doing and she grudgingly agrees? And it's a hark back to, I think it must have been the 60s, when Lord Altrincham did the same to her. Do you remember that bit when Claire Foy was uh, the Queen... And this um, young, very nice man, he'd been publicly saying the, the monarchy needs to shape up and modern up. Um, and, yeah. and they were getting a bit antsy about it. And then he gets invited to the palace to meet a private secretary. And it turns out it's actually the queen. And she's going, come on, then put your cards on the table. We haven't had this meeting. So it was a bit like it was a deja vu. No, oh, excellent. I mean, that's something that this has come back and forth uh, in the series time and again, is that that's something that she's had to contend with during her entire reign. Yeah. Um, I, I liked how they um, dramatised her decision whether or not to uh, stand down and allow uh, Charles to uh, yeah. to take over. I thought some... I thought the, the justification for that was really actually quite well done, quite interesting. Suffice to say, yeah, I thought it ended very, very strongly. I think season six... A lot of people thought that it began quite weak, uh, but I think it ended um, tri quite triumphantly. I was really uh, impressed. With so it. Claire Foy and Imelda, is that what you reckon? What do, I, what do you mean? In terms of being the queen? I think they all, I think they all did a fantastic <laughs> job, did, yeah. quite frankly. I mean, I think Claire Foy, to some degree, got, the, got the, the, the best scripts, probably. I think those first two seasons... Uh, were probably still from a story-wise point of view were, were the most interesting. Again, we've discussed this in, in the past. It's because I think it covered a lot of aspects that we were less familiar with. And so I think therefore that they're inherently more engaging. Actually, yeah, it was. It was. It was. However, we must, we must move on. Oh, sorry. I like talking about but the we crown must. though. What do you think about the crown? Join us on Facebook Live. Let's, let's ambush Marshy. <laughs> and we'll talk about it next week.
Uh, okay, so Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is out. This is the much long-delayed uh, sequel to 2018. So, surprise hit, actually, Aquaman. It did way better than ever, anybody thought it would do. This is the the final chapter in the current DC universe as we know it. You will never see these actors playing these roles ever again. Oh, um, this has been do. the subject of new. This has been the subject of numerous rounds of reshoots and rewrites for a variety of reasons. Okay. Um, there was obviously the pandemic. Uh, there was the whole Amber Heard thing uh, with Johnny Depp, where they, where she was. Did you hear that? What was that? That was me yawning. Graphically. Mm. Well, it's 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 you know yes, it's boring, but it's also very much part of the uh, of the story here. Um, Amber Heard is, you know, gets third billing in this movie, but she's she's not really in it very much, and it, it very much looks like she has been excised as much as they could, uh, without interfering with her contract terms and without um, jeopardizing the coherence of the story, because clearly she was supposed to play a pivotal role. Whereas now, what happens is she seems to just appear out of nowhere from time to time, do something actually quite integral to the plot, and then just disappear again. <laughs> And you're like, kind of like, oh, okay, interesting. Uh, and also, there is the whole thing that this was supposed to come out before The Flash, which, as you remember, came out six months ago. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, they were try tying in this whole multiverse thing with different incarnations of Batman show up. Uh, Jason Momoa said that he... He shot scenes both with Michael Keaton as Batman and then with Ben Affleck as Batman. They were going to have one version of Batman in the in the movie. Uh, then when the flat when this was going to come out before the Flash, they were like, "Well, we can't have the Michael Keaton Batman because no one understands what's going on." So they reshot it with Ben Affleck. Then the Flash got delayed, uh, or this got delayed even further. So the Flash ended up coming out before. So they thought, "Well, we can do the." In the end, they ended up not doing any of the Batman stuff at all. Um, Suffice to say that this is a bit of a hot mess when it arrives. Ooh, but yeah. but that is not to say that it is not at least superficially quite entertaining. I don't think uh, expectations are very high. I don't think audience demands are very high. I don't think really there are many people standing there clamoring for this movie at all. Um, however, you know, Jason Momoa does have a sort of an undeniable charisma to him. You know, he is very watchable. He has made the character very likable. It was kind of a joke character back in like the sort of 60s, 70s. It was a bit of a sort of the butt of a lot of jokes. He was just this weird guy who could talk to fish. Uh, he has made the character an interesting character. The focus here is very much a sort of buddy comedy bromance between him and his estranged brother, played by Patrick Wilson, who right. you might recall was the kind of the main adversary in the first film. And when this one starts, he is in prison. But for for various uh, convoluted plot reasons, he needs to pull his brother out of prison and they need to work together. And essentially, that's the... The, the bulk of the story. There is a villain. They bring back Yahya Abdul-Mateen II's uh, Black Manta, uh, and he has got a trident that is powered with some evil magic, and he's going to take over the world, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there, there are a lot. It feels very choppy. It feels like it has been rewritten again and again and again. It has been re-edited again and again and again. They have gone back and reshot stuff. But when it's on point, and I think the strongest stuff is the sort of buddy comedy between uh, Arthur Curry and his brother Orm. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it intermittently entertains, but uh, for a movie this big and this expensive, that's not enough. And this is very much the DCEU as we know it, going out with a soggy whimper rather than a bang.
You've been working on that all morning, haven't you? Join us on Facebook Live if you want to say hi to Marshy. Needless to say, Steve and Greg are both commenting on there about, guess what? The crown. Well, have at it. All right. So Steve says, looking forward to finishing season six. Love the whole series. Marshy is right. First two seasons were the best. <laughs> and John Lithgow was spot on as Winston. And then Greg says, huge fan of the crowd. <laughs> huge fan of the crown. Got two more episodes to go in the final season. Best thing on telly in a long time. And he says he loves your sweater. Merry Christmas. In Thank you very much. I Katakana, no Have less. You? Is that where you okay, are? In, in, a, in a couple of minutes. Where is he? Katakana. Yeah, I wonder if that's the language he's speaking in. Anyway, Greg, good on you. Good for getting in yeah. touch. Yeah. Wonderful, Don't wonderful. Message me okay, about so we, just a couple of minutes before the news, very quickly want to talk about the other big sort of family Christmas movie that is yeah. out, which is, which is Wish. Um, which is the, the big new animated Disney film that is supposed to commemorate a hundred years of Disney. You know, it's supposed, this is supposed to be the culmination of a hundred years of animated work. Um, and so it's understandably they have taken as a central conceit the, the, uh, man Disney mantra, if you like, when you wish upon a star. And it's the story of a young girl in a sort of magical kingdom, uh, who makes a wish upon a star and it gives her kind of special powers that Blardy, she is able Blardy, to use. Blardy, Blardy, Blardy to overthrow a corrupt patriarchy. Um, it's very generic. It's very kind of, you know, underwhelming. Uh, it has obviously sort of talking, singing animals and walking trees and evil, <laughs> evil, evil kings and a nice family and a magical star. And, you know, it has all the ingredients, as you would all say. All the eggs, but no omelette. There Flash. you go. And for, for once, I agree with you. Um, huh. it's, it's really sad to see that, you know, a powerhouse like Disney commemorating such an impressive milestone in their history uh, deliver such a damp squid. Squib. Uh, all I can say is this, this is good news for Aquaman. It's definitely the better of the two movies, but that is a very low bar indeed. Fair play. All right, then. Well, you've got two more minutes because we had three just then. Okay. Um, well, what I can do is tease the fact that after the news, I will be unveiling oh, on, my do. top my my top ten. Explain exactly what your, your okay. Well, my top is. ten. I like yeah. to keep. I like to keep the the um the the criteria very loose. You know, I do go keep to festivals. I do see low. stuff. I, I like to keep the bar low, but I like to keep it loose. I mean, it doesn't have to have had a theatrical release in Hong Kong to qualify because right. a lot of the distributors drag their heels and wait till the early months of the following year during awards season in order to release awards contenders. Mm. If I've seen them and they count as 2023 movies, I'm including and them. That's Sorry, that. but that's just how it, that's just how it goes. Um, I can do a quick honourable mentions before we get going in no real particular order, but Go 15 to 11. Well, look, let's just let's cut to the chase. Find a really little-known Korean art house indie, and that will be number one. Well, yeah, don't spoil the surprise. <laughs> but, um, OK, so no, in, no, in no particular order, but 15 to 11, Anatomy of a Fall, Dream Scenario, starring Nicolas Cage, Napoleon... Ridley Scott's great big war epic. Oh, yeah. The Killer, The Killer, which is on Netflix right now with Michael Fassbender, directed by David Fincher, and John Wick Chapter 4, which is, you know, kind of like the, the, the grandiose operatic action movie of our times. Yeah. And is, uh, you know, yeah. was rather spectacular for all yeah. those reasons. But yes, but that's why it's not in my top 10, because I know it ain't for everybody. Yeah. It's an acquired taste, but I, I liked it. Go on. Then. So those are the, those are the also rans. Those are 15 to 11 in no particular order. Anatomy of a Fool, I think, is going 
going to feature very prominently in a lot of people's lists and come award season. Um, Dream Scenario is a Nicolas Cage movie which is opening here first week of January, which yeah. I uh, saw the other day and actually quite found it quite delightful. Uh, Napoleon, I'm surprised, um, hasn't been embraced as warmly as I thought it might be. Too much fighting. You never often hear people say that, do you? Too much fighting, not enough loving, I too, guess. Too many nuts. Uh, well, that, well, it's funny you should say that because, uh, yeah, the, the Amadeus uh, comparisons are ones that oh, we should be talking really? about. All right, well, go and have a cup of tea. I'm going to cover you up now because it's time to do the weather forecast. Join us on Facebook Live, The Brew. Hello, C. Good afternoon, newbie. Right. Cold, mainly cloudy and dry. Moderate, fresh, northerly winds. It's going to stay cold over the weekend. Yeah. Okay, then, let's get to the meat and potatoes, shall we? Okay, all right, so my top ten of the year. Apologies in advance, because some of these films haven't been released in Hong Kong. That's not my fault. Okay? Call it with the caveats and get on with it. Okay, so at ten is The Iron Claw. This is a new oh, yes. movie from Sean Durkin. This is the true story of a uh, an American wrestling family, the Von Erich family, who sort of rose up through the 1980s and changed the face of American wrestling as we know it. I know how that sounds. It doesn't sound like a movie I would be interested in either, but it is and it works. Zac Efron uh, is transformative as Kevin Von Erich, who is kind of like at the centre of this family. Him and his brothers have been pressured into the sport by their father. Their father was a, you know, a, a notorious wrestler, yeah. Fritz Von Erich, back in the day. He had a signature move called the, the Iron, Iron Claw, Claw. Which he, where he clamped his hand over the guy's head and squeezed it, him into submission. <laughs> so the Iron Claw is not is not only um, so the title is not only referring to that signature move, referring to the kind of uh, inescapable grip that the father has over his sons and the influence he has over them, but also the family becomes convinced that they are cursed and that there this is actually sounds quite good. I half take it back an inescapable tragic fate that bewaits all of them and that they cannot escape from. Uh, joining Zac Efron is Jeremy Allen White. People might know from the TV show The Bear. I haven't watched it. People love it. Harris Dickinson is a, one of the hottest upcoming British actors right now. Completely disappears into this uh, into this role as, as an American uh, wrestler. Lily James, we all know and love, is in there too. Uh, this, fingers crossed, hopefully will be appearing in Hong Kong very, very soon. It's called The Iron claw i loved it it really came out of left so field, much you gave the it the corner. number 10 spot so much so i gave it the number 10 spot you know there it, it should be it should be flattered just to be there uh moving on <laughs> moving on this is another movie that i had i knew nothing about sat down and watched and it blew me away this is called bottoms by emma seligman whose previous work um uh, whose name escapes me now. What was her previous film called? Uh, it was called uh, Shiva Baby, was a big sort of indie hit. So Bottoms is an American high school comedy right. about uh, two teenage lesbians uh, played by Rachel Senot and Io Adabiri. They are losers. They are bottoms. They are the, at the bottom of the pile. They are unpopular. Uh, but they both have crushes on the two most popular cheerleaders in school. So they devise this ridiculous idea that they are going to start a fight club 
at their school. Okay. What they're gonna, what it's gonna do is, is they're gonna pretend that what it is is about teaching girls self-defense. It's about teaching them empowerment. It's a way for them to keep, keep the jocks and the, you know, the football team at bay. You know, all these horrible testosterone fueled boys who are circling them all. When in actual fact, the girls have an ulterior motive. It's really because they just want to get close to and hopefully make out with the cheerleaders. Right. So, it's such a ridiculously harebrained idea, and that is just where it jumps off from. Everything that happens is completely out of left field. Surprise after surprise, it goes into some very bizarre, very dark territory. If you like teen high school movies like Heather's or like election movies like that, this is definitely worth seeking out. It is called Bottoms. I thought it was brilliant, right. subversive, breaks the mold. <laughs> It's number nine. He's doing his top ten of the year. If you're listening on Gas Radio and you've got a few minutes spare, join us on Facebook Live. The Brew is the page, because love to hear what you think about his selection, which is going to get good, I assure you, but not in the way he thinks. Go on. Well, we all know where you stand. <laughs> um, at number eight, we have a crown connection here, you'll be happy to know. At eight is Saltburn. Another film hasn't opened in Hong Kong yet. It will be coming very soon. It is the sophomore feature, as they say. The second film from writer-director Emerald Fennell. Emerald Fennell won the Best Original Screenplay Oscar in 2020 for her movie Promising Young Woman, which was very high in my top ten that year. She also played Camilla Parker Bowles mm. in seasons three and four of The Crown. This is her second feature. It is about Oxford, set in Oxford University. Barry Keegan uh, plays Oliver Quick, who is a young northern lad from a working class family. He's actually uh, like a foster child. He's had it really rough. He gets a scholarship into Oxford University where he immediately feels out of place. He's got to justify his own existence every turn. Mm -hmm. He gravitates towards the very sort of stuffy, uh, handsome, aristocratic Felix, played by Jacob Elordi and slowly ingratiates himself into his social circle and is invited back to his family estate of Saltburn for the summer, which uh, goes pretty crazy. Right. This has definite elements of uh, Pasolini's theorem. There's also elements of Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley. You know, it's all about, you know, a, a, a some kind of con artist who ingratiates themselves into a very sort of uh, wealthy, well-to-do aristocratic uh, community and proceeds to exploit it for his own personal gain. Rosamund Pike, who plays Felix's mother, is phenomenal in She's this. Great. She's absolutely brilliant. She is worth the ticket price alone. Uh, it goes into, again, some very weird, very uh, dark territory, but that's just the kind of stuff I like. So that is Saltburn, and that is number eight. Brill, remind us, 10-9 now. Again, keep doing the reminders. Sell, sell, sell. Okay, so at 10, The Iron Claw. At 9, Bottoms. At 8, Saltburn. Now at number 7, All of Us Strangers. This is the new film from Andrew Haig, a very sort of uh, accomplished British filmmaker and stars two of the hottest British actors of today, Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal. You sound like you're selling cars. Get a grip. Two what would you like to sell? Just today, that number 8, ladies. <laughs> well, we'd be getting on with it if it wasn't for... I know. I'm loving it, though. Go I on. know. Good, good. You're loving it. OK. Uh, Andrew Scott plays Adam, who yeah. is a uh, 
who's a struggling screenwriter. He's just moved into this very fancy new apartment block in London where it appears that almost nobody else lives. There might be one other guy who lives in on one of the other floors, a guy called Harry, played by Paul Mescal. Hmm. And um, they might sort of develop some kind of romantic uh, connection between the two of them. Uh, Adam is trying to work on a new screenplay, which is a story about his parents. His parents died when he was in a car crash when he was 12 years old, right. as when they were about the same age that he is now. So he keeps going back to his old family home in order to kind of draw inspiration from that period to try and sort of reconnect with that period. But he is surprised to find that when he t- shows up at the family home, his parents are there. And his parents ah. are there and alive and are the same age that they were when they died 25 years ago. And he starts sort of reconnecting with them. So you're like, is this a ghost story? Is this all in his imagination? What is going on? In the meantime, there is this uh, uh, very sort of er- erotically charged uh, relationship with this other guy that he is exploring back in his apartment building. It's a fascinating beautiful very poetic sort of movie just about grief dealing with grief uh you know we realize quickly that adam hasn't really addressed the tragedy of his parents death in you know sufficiently uh i was surprised to learn that it's actually based on a japanese novel or inspired by a japanese novel that i read way back in the day uh, uh called strangers by taichi yamada um it only takes one of the key conceits from that story. So it's actually very, very different. And that was far more of a straight up kind of horror movie. Mm. Uh, This is far more of a drama. It certainly has been doing well with um, the queer community for very obvious reasons, but there is so much more to it that it really has a universal appeal. I found it quite sort of beautiful, uh, life affirming, considering what it's about. I thought it was great. It's called All of Us Strangers. Uh, That is number seven. At number six. Now, this movie has been sitting there pretty in my top ten since the very, very start of the year. This is a movie that I saw way back in January and has really stayed with me. Um, It's a movie that I didn't think would be for me at all. This is a Japanese anime based on a really popular, long-running manga series and anime series. It's called The First Slam Dunk, and it's about high school basketball. Right. I know. I can see your face, and I felt exactly the same way going into it. But it is absolutely phenomenal, not least because of its, um, you know, the, its animated style, which is hand-drawn 2D animation, uh, 3D CGI animation, but also motion capture. So it took actors, you know, doing all the moves and whatever, and scanned them in order to create a sort of a flowing, realistic. Uh, you know, tactile, energetic portrayal of basketball. It's got some of the most um, innovative and complicated basketball plays in the in the movie that you've, animated, I've ever yeah. seen. In because because it's animated, so you don't need to actually train actors to to do it. Um, but more than anything, was that the, just the dramatic structure, the narrative structure of it. The whole movie takes place during a single game of basketball and i can't remember ever seeing a sports movie that does that before normally it's a tournament or it's a season or whatever this is the whole movie is one game but over as every play plays out every character you know has a moment a flicker of doubt in their head the film jumps to what it is and where, where that doubt came from where that inspiration came from and so there are lots of flashbacks out of out of the uh, the game 
in order to learn the backstory about the characters. And then it jumps back into the moment and uh, we follow the game in its nail-biting uh, sequence right to the end. I was as surprised as anybody else that this really uh, works for me. I actually saw it twice in IMAX while it was playing in cinemas. It's actually still playing in Hong Kong cinemas today. It came out in January. I can't think of another movie that has been in cinemas all year. Uh, it's called The First Slam Dunk, and it is my number six. Get on there. All right. Number five. Okay. This is a movie that came out yesterday. Oh, this. Ding, ding, ding. Yellow card. Go on. What's that then? Well, if it came out yesterday. Yeah. I don't know why, but that sounds dodgy to me. Why? It's still the year, isn't it? We've got another week. It could come out next week and it would still count. Um, This is this is Bradley Cooper's Maestro about Leonard Bernstein. Brilliant. See, see, you see, this is what happens when you interrupt me. You see, <laughs> I'm just keeping it alive, you, baby. Uh, is that what you're doing, or you're killing it dead? Yeah. It's one of the two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this, um, this uh, is a Netflix movie. Uh, it dropped on Netflix yesterday. Uh, people who listen to this show uh, may remember that when Bradley Bradley Cooper's first uh, directorial effort, A Star Is Born, came out uh, back in 2018. I thought it was I thought it was great. I was really impressed with how well he directed the movie and I thought that that was going to go a long way and was going to be one of the big Oscar winners. It ended up getting nominated for a bunch of stuff but then largely got shut out except for the best song for that song he did with Lady Gaga. Yeah. Uh, he's he's gone above and beyond with his second film. This is a you know a biopic about Leonard Bernstein, you know the great composer conductor, the maestro of the title. Uh it covers about 50 years of his life and career. Um but very selflessly the focus is as much on his wife as it is on Bernstein himself and Carrie Mulligan is absolutely sensational as Felicia uh Montelage who was the actress that he married, who then basically had to sacrifice her career aspirations in order to support him. Mm. Uh, She was also long-suffering because, as you will know, Leonard Bernstein was bisexual and had took many male lovers uh, and didn't really hide it and kind of rubbed it in. He was like omnisexual, omni-everything, that guy. He was everything, yeah. And uh, and the film does not shy away from that, and so obviously that causes a lot of friction in their relationship right. uh, with his ch- with his children. Uh, his oldest daughter, in particular, played by uh, Maya Hawke, mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke's daughter, who is uh, you know one of the promising young actresses of the time. It uses a fascinating mixture of color and and black and white in in its approach to the character and to the bio the story. It reminded me not um, not a small amount of Oppenheimer. Oh, yeah. You know, in just te- technically how it looked and how it felt. Uh, Cooper is brilliant. His direction is brilliant. Carrie Mulligan is excellent. Uh, there, is, there are a number of sort of virtuoso bravura sequences, not least uh, this entire six minutes, apparently single take uh, conducting sequence in a grand cathedral. Really conducting, uh, by the way, which you're going to point out. Really, yeah. Bradley Cooper is really doing the conducting. I was... Uh, blown away by this movie actually you know and and you'll see that my top five is pretty interchangeable i mean all of these all of these movies are brilliant uh and it's just where they land on the day that's maestro it's on netflix right now as of yesterday um and it's great it's my number five quick comment from greg have only heard of one of the movies in marsh's obscure top 10 so far iron claw but will def seek these out says greg on our facebook feed 
Oh, well, that's good. The, the one he's heard of is one that hasn't actually so really opened anywhere yet. It played in the, I think it opened in the US like last week or something like that, I, but it had a bit of festival play. Uh, yeah, the, unfortunately, that's just how the structure of these release schedules go. It's almost a case of here are the films to look out for next year yeah. as much as it is about the best ones of last year. Um, number four is a, very much a case in point. This is a movie that opened uh, earlier this month in most territories, certainly in the US, the UK, and its homeland of Japan, where it has been making waves and sending trembles and earthquakes through the communities, but there is still no official word on its release in Hong Kong. Fingers crossed for Chinese New Year, because this absolutely deserves to be seen on the big screen. This is Godzilla minus one <laughs> it is fantastic you know I, and i say that not just as a godzilla fan but it, this does a great job it is directed by takashi yamazaki one of the most celebrated big mainstream directors in japan this takes place at the end of world war ii so it kind of predates even the very first godzilla movie mm. it's about a disgrace it's a it focuses on a disgraced kamikaze pilot uh, who seeks redemption by taking a job as a minesweeper in the oceans at the end of the war. Disgraced you know, because he's, you know... Because he bottled it. Because he's, he's, still, it, he's still able to go and find another job. Yeah, I see. Because he's alive, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the, very much the starting point of the movie is, is he doesn't go through with his, you know, his dutiful honour of, of killing himself for the emperor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then he gets a lot of stick from that for from the the, re the rest of the community. They're like, if you had done your job, you know, maybe my family would have survived the bombing of Tokyo, or you know, and all of this kind of stuff. So he's facing a lot of um, persecution from his community. Uh, when who should rise up out of the depths but Godzilla himself to go marauding around the city? And this is an opportunity for a a community. A, a country that is very jaded, uh, lost all faith in their government and in their community. At the end of the war, you know, they see that a lot of the deaths were unnecessary, now have a common cause, something to rally behind, something to, um, something justifiable. Uh, and tangible even for the ordinary people. Mm. Uh, but it also never forgets to be a full-on Godzilla movie. It's It really is quite something. It's quite brilliant. Uh, it, it's multi-layered, and I really just hope they hurry up and just get it, bring it out in Hong Kong because uh, I can't, I can't wait to see it on the big screen where it really deserves to be. Apparently, they're already gonna release a black and white version oh, in Japan yeah. on the That's in, in early January, which sounds, which sounds great. I love it when they do that. Uh, so fingers crossed. Chinese New Year makes sense. I mean, you look at the paltry things that are on on release this week in Hong Kong. You know, maybe they wanted to avoid Aquaman or whatever, but it's it would have it would have buried Aquaman if it came out this week. Uh, we will just have to wait and see. Godzilla minus one, my number four. Okay. Okay, number three, a movie we've talked about quite a lot. Martin Scorsese's The Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, I think this is shaping up to definitely to be uh, a, a contender for Best Picture and, and a number of other awards at the Oscars. It seems to have done incredibly well at the award ceremonies that have already taken place. Scorsese in his 80s, still firing on all cylinders. Yes, it's long. It's like three and a half hours long. But I went and saw that, it right? twice. That's the thing. You do know that. You go go in knowing that. I, I went and saw it twice at the cinema and it flew by. I've seen 90-minute movies that felt longer than this 206-minute movie. DiCaprio is great. Robert De Niro is great. It's the first time that they've really been in a movie together under Scorsese's direction. They did do A Boy's Life back in the day, but that wasn't his. Uh, the real breakout here is Lily Gladstone, who plays the long-suffering Osage Nation wife. She is, is going to be an absolute shoo-in. 
the best actress come Oscar time. Will she win? I don't know. It's going to be a very competitive uh, category. Uh, if you don't know what this is, this is essentially part part Western, part gangster movie, mm. part sort of... Um, part real, part factual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all about the exploitation of the Osage Nation Indians and how that they were sort of white, rich white men were marrying into their families and stealing all their oil money. Is basically what it's about, and it's about one of the one of the first uh, FBI cases as well after J. Edgar Hoover set up the FBI. Lots going on for it, based on a brilliant book by David Grant, uh, which I've also read. is also great. Um, yeah, and this will be on Apple eventually. It's an Apple produced movie, but go see it on the big screen. It's beautiful. Robbie Robertson. Uh, of the band uh, mm-hmm. who died earlier this year did the score and I I think it's probably one of the safest bets come Oscar time will be a posthumous uh, best score for Robbie Robertson okay. uh, you heard it you heard it here last uh, number two okay we're nearly there we're nearly there yeah. okay number number two um, this is coming out in Hong Kong in February uh, this is Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things now you know Yorgos Lanthimos. He directed the the Lobster yeah. and the Favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He reteams with the favorites Emma Stone here for a kind of Frankenstein story of a mad detective, uh, detective of a of a mad professor played by Willem Dafoe, uh, who fishes in, in Victorian London. He fishes a young woman out of the Thames who has committed suicide. He. Uh, Brings her back to life, teaches her about the world, but in the um, closed confines of his London home. She then decides that she's had enough of that and that she wants to escape and see the world. She elopes with um, Mark Ruffalo's dastardly lawyer and they go and tour Europe and indulge in plenty of furious jumping, as they refer to it. Uh, This is penned by uh, the... The, the the writer, uh, Tony McNamara, who also wrote the TV show The Great. Uh, visually, it's incredibly stylish, opulent, over the top, you know, utterly ridiculous. Uh, Willem Dafoe's other experiments are just utterly bizarre, and you see all of these sort of vivid animals and what have you. It's all very, very odd. Uh, it's, it's very uh, erotically charged as she goes on a journey of sexual awakening as much as anything else. Uh, it skewers the patriarchy, you know, her... Her uninhibited perspective of the world, uh, force, you know, causes her to um, make a number of uh, observances that women of that period were not supposed to uh, to make. Uh, and it is also incredibly funny. The the dialogue in this is so floral, so over the top, so debauched. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it is brilliant. There are so many wonderfully sort of Chaucerian, Jacobean. Um, uh, sort of g- g- quotes uh, that that are not that are not uh, repeatable on air, but are just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. This is again one of the best films of the year. Emma Emma Stone is absolutely in the running for best actress. She's already won once for La La Land, but her and her and Mark Ruffalo are both going to be sort of hot favourites for their in their categories. But that leaves me to number one, and I don't think this is going to be really a great surprise to too many people because it seems like a bit of a kind of, ah, yeah, okay, obvious choice in some regards. You say Barbie, we are done. I'm not saying Barbie. Good. Barbie Barbie kind of didn't really do it for me, but it's not Barbie, but it is the Unheimer. It is Oppenheimer. Wow. which it just it's I know it's it's the movie that sort of defied all expectations. It's a stuffy three hour uh, biopic about a scientist. It's it's a movie about politicians and scientists sitting in rooms arguing for three hours that made almost a billion dollars. Yep. It is 
and I again, it's a movie I went and saw multiple times. It is a surprisingly entertaining and emotional and obviously sort of visually and technically audacious in its storytelling. Uh, you know, by all accounts, Oppenheimer, not a great guy, not a nice guy even. Uh, that doesn't make the movie anything less than compelling. Robert Downey Jr., uh, as as Strauss, as you've never seen him before, um, put money on him winning Best Supporting Actor at the ah. Oscars. Uh, but Killian Murphy, you know, one of his very first sort of leading roles in a movie of this scale, absolutely knocks it out of the park. I think this might be Christopher Nolan's year for Best Director, if not Best Picture. I think, you know, there are a number of movies he's going to be up against, but I got a feeling they might just give it to him this time. Um, I'm not a Nolan fanboy per se, but this is uh, this this is the movie that just has sat on top of my list since the day I saw it, and I've I've seen it a number of times, and it's it's just great. It really is. There you have it, the Marshy Movie Time number one this year, keeping it down to standard. Oppenheimer. Let's meet here next week and do some more. How about that? Sure. I would love to hear people's feedback on all of this. Yeah, just check out our Facebook feed. I'm just about to switch it off, but that's when it starts to get interesting. Take care, Marshy. Happy Christmas. 